Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. So final instructions that you give to people can be very important at times. And, you know, like maybe a coach before a big game, He's going to, right before in the locker room, right before they go out on the court or go out on the field, the coach is going to spend that last 30 seconds telling his team, don't forget what we practiced this week, okay? We scouted our opponent. We know what their tendencies are. We practiced for this. We prepared for this. We know what's coming. Or maybe if you're like a big, a big favorite and you're you know, facing an underdog, the coach is probably going to say, don't overlook this team. Okay, don't overlook the Jacksonville Jaguars, even though we can beat them with one leg, literally, okay? I'm sure that was the message yesterday because we were a heavy favorite. Uh, We didn't cover, but, you know, it is what it is. Still win by touchdown. That's all that matters. And uh, Mahomes still has one leg, so we're in in good shape. We're fine. Anybody want to donate your right ankle to to him this week, you know? Um, But the coach is going to give that that last second information that the team needs to know before they go out there and charge the field. Or maybe you can relate to this one uh, better, especially the ladies. Maybe you're going to go out on a date, whatever that is, right? And you've got a babysitter. And so, ladies, this is probably you because the guy's already out in the car. You know, he's honking the horn, hurry up, the movie's going to start, you know, that sort of thing. But your mom, you're in there telling the babysitter all the last things they need to know, okay? Emergency numbers are on the counter. There's snacks in the fridge. The remote for a movie is on the table over here. If you need me, you got, we'll be home by 9.30. We're going to be fine. So you're laying that last second information, uh, the final instructions before you leave. Jesus does the same thing. In Acts chapter 1, he, does, he gives final instructions for his uh, followers that are the same instructions for us. And so we're going to look at that today as we continue our series, The Movement, as we're studying the book of Acts. And then we're starting that with this sort of mini-series called Three Views of the Movement. Uh, and today we're going to look at this, sort of the final instructions Jesus gives in Acts chapter 1 before he ascends into heaven. And the final instructions that he gives are really an itinerary so that his followers can know where to go and what to do to complete the mission he's given them. So today, the view of the movement that we'll look at is three locations. We're going to look at three locations of the movement. If the screens aren't working today, the system's been kind of behind, so don't worry about it. Um, If you need notes, we do have notes on the Bible app, so if you have that and you want to see where we're going, that's there for you as well under events. Um, Or if you need notes later on, just email me and I'll get them to you. Um, So here we go. Three locations today of the movement. Because the mission for, the, for followers of Jesus, spoiler alert, is to tell people about Jesus. But what he does is very strategic in Acts chapter 1 is he gives them a plan, an itinerary for this mission. And that's what we're going to look at. So let's start again in Acts chapter 1. Next week, okay, we're going to move on to something we haven't read yet. Today we're going to reread something we read last week, but look at it from a different point of view. Next week, let me go ahead and tell you, is going to be super practical for your life. As we look at the rest of Acts chapter 1, we're going to look at how you can make key decisions in your life. 
That's where we're going to be next week as we finish up Acts chapter 1. Uh, but today we're going to go over what we've already read, but looking at it again from a, this point of view of the three locations of the movement. So we're in Acts chapter 1, starting at verse number 4, and here is what Luke writes. Once when Jesus was eating with his disciples, he commanded them, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And here are the three locations. You'll be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. So these final words of Jesus are going to be super important. If he knows these are the last things I'm going to tell these people before I leave them, it better be important. And so he gives an itinerary so they can complete their mission. Now, you'll notice there are four locations named, but we're going to group the first two into one, and you'll see how that's going to work here in just a minute. Now, if the screen will, will cooperate for a second, I want to, to geographically show you these locations that Jesus lists so you can see kind of how they spread out and how they look. So the first one, he says, you're going to start in Jerusalem which is a city where they are, just one simple location, okay? And what you see in this progression that Jesus gives in Acts 1 is throughout the book of Acts, this is how the book of Acts flows. From Jerusalem, and really Judea, in a way, is really Acts chapter 1 through 7. So they're in this little bitty dot right here, okay? And then more when you get into Judea and Samaria, which is a neighboring uh, part of there, it kind of widens out, and that's really Acts chapters 8 through 12, so it's a roadmap that Jesus, literally an itinerary he's giving them. And then at the end, he says, then you're going to go to the ends of the earth, which is really Paul's ministry in Acts chapters 13 through 28. And when he says the ends of the earth, he means like the whole thing, the whole planet, the whole globe, every person, every people. And we'll get to that this morning as we talk about these three locations. So what we're going to do is work through these locations twice. First, we're going to see how Jesus interacted in these locations, and then how the, the apostles and disciples in Acts worked through these locations, and then we'll come back through them and see how that applies to us. What is your Jerusalem? What is your Judea? What is your Samaria? And how can you reach the ends of the earth with the good news about Jesus? So that's where we're going to go today as we look at these three locations from the book of Acts. The first location, again, we're going to take the first two and lump them together that Jesus talks about. There's the ends of the earth. Uh, is Jerusalem and Judea. Jerusalem and Judea is the first one. So this is just their immediate vicinity, where they live, where they work, where they do business. And you might think, and the disciples may have thought at some point, well, this is easy. This is where I live. This is no big deal. I don't have to go that far. I, I know the people. So this is an easy peasy piece of cake. But even in looking at the life of Jesus, they would have known that is not always the case. Sometimes the immediate vicinity God's called you to is maybe the most difficult to reach because you do know those people, because they do know you, right? And so we see an example of this 
uh, in Mark chapter 6 in the life of Jesus. So let's look at this, Mark 6, 1 through 3, to give this example of Jesus ministering in this first realm himself. It says this, Mark 6, verse 1, Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed, but not in a good way. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed, he's just a carpenter. That two-word phrase is huge, he's just. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. So Jesus, by this time, had become a pretty well-known person in the region. He's become a bit of a celebrity in the religious world of first century Jerusalem, Judea, this area. And so when he goes back home, you would expect he's going to get a parade, Like any small town that has a celebrity from that town, he's going to get the key to the city. Like he's going to, they'll just vote him in as mayor, like without a vote because he's the, you know, I knew him when, like I babysat Jesus, you know, but the people have the total opposite reaction when he comes back into town, right? And they, what do they say? He's just, oh, he's just Mary and Joe's kid, right? Or he's just gotten too big for his britches because he's from this small town thinking he's somebody. Now, he's a celebrity. You know, he's in the headline. He's a, he's a big deal. He's just. So Jesus found, and his disciples learned from this, that sometimes that immediate vicinity location, not such an easy thing to deal with. They're offended by him. Uh, they refuse to believe in him. And it says, Mark records after that, that Jesus couldn't do many miracles there. He had to move on and go where they would accept him, where they did believe in him. So they missed out because of their unbelief. The immediate vicinity for Jesus was tricky. And in Acts, the disciples learned this too. Again, the first location, Jerusalem, Judea, close by, close to home. But they have the same struggles in their immediate vicinity. Now we'll cover, I'm going to do a quick run through of this location through Acts, kind of chapter by chapter to show you the resistance that they had. But we'll spend the next two, three months, four months in these, in these chapters as we keep going. But just to give you an idea of how this was true for them too. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John heal someone, and then they begin preaching about Jesus. And then immediately they're arrested by the religious authority in Jerusalem. Okay? Should be on the same team here, doing good things, you know, heal the guy. That's cool. And they're like, no, 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 no. We don't want you to do that. So they arrest them. They eventually let them go, but they threaten them. Do not preach in the name of Jesus again. But Peter and John, being who they are, decide, yeah, we're probably not going to do that. We're going to do what God told us to do. Uh, And so they continue doing their ministry. And in Acts chapter 5, they're arrested again. This time, the religious leaders are going to kill them until one of the people uh, we'll, we'll talk about him. It'll be a while. I started looking at it this week, and there's a cool parallel that I'm, I'm working. I'm going to get there. Maybe around Easter we'll be there. Who, who knows? We'll see. But one of the guys finally says, no, 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 let's not, let's not kill them because then we'll make martyrs of them, and then this thing's going to really catch fire. So let's not do it. So they, they let them go. But again, the idea is stop preaching in the name of Jesus. They continue to do that, and the movement continues to spread. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen becomes the first named known Christian martyr. Again, killed by the religious people in his town that he knew just for his faith. 
And then in Acts, as the beginning of Acts 8 starts, the persecution in the church from Jerusalem and Judea, or Jerusalem really, has gotten so large, it causes the Christians to scatter. So an interesting thing that we'll focus on when we get there is that what, think about this, it's the persecution of the church that was an accelerant for the movement. Now, we don't like to hear that. We don't want to hear that. I don't want to say it, but it's true, and it's still true. Some of the places in the world now where the church is growing at an accelerated rate is where it's not legal to be a Christian. So it's, that, that formula still checks out. It still works. Now, again, that's a different sermon for a different day, but what we see here is both in the life of Jesus and in the apostles and Acts, this Jerusalem-Judea thing, not as easy as it might sound. The second location, then, that Jesus gives might be even seem more bizarre to his followers because the second location, the second one he talks about is Samaria. Now, Samaria is sort of hostile territory for the Jewish people. It's sort of this little strip of land that cuts Israel kind of in two pieces. So, typically, the hostility between these people groups is so great. So, when the northern kingdom of Israel, maybe 700 B.C., uh, fell and was conquered— they sort of were scattered. Some of them were exiled. Some of them weren't. And many of the ones that remained in northern, the northern kingdom proper, they would intermarry with people from other faiths, which was against their law. And what came from that after generations is the Samaritan people group. And then Samaria became sort of a little pocket here where they lived. So Samaritans and Jews, their beliefs had a lot of similarities to them. They both go back to Abraham at the core, but you know, the Samaritans would say, well, we worship God here at this holy site up north, and you guys worship down in Jerusalem, so we're different even though we're kind of the same. And the hostility is so great, and the way that Samaria is in the middle there, that most Jews, when they have to go either north-south or south-north, are going to extend their journey by maybe hours or days to walk around Samaria to not step foot in that dirty little country, right? And so what's interesting here is that uh, Jesus does this one time, right? He, he walks through Samaria, meets a woman at a well, and her life completely changes. So he broke the customs, he broke the rules for the sake of people. That's what he did in Samaria. The other part of this uh, tension between these people groups that's so interesting is that's what makes the Good Samaritan parable such a big deal. Like, we don't maybe think of it in those terms. Jesus makes the bad guy and the good guy in the story, right? This Jewish man walking down the road, he's beaten up by robbers and left for dead on the side of the road in the ditch. This priest, this Jewish leader, passes by him, crosses by the other side of the road and doesn't help him. A Levite, high-ranking Jewish official who should and you would think would help, crosses over and doesn't help him. But then a Samaritan walks by and helps him, gives him aid, takes him to a place to get healed and, and pays for the tab and says, when I come back and check on him, whatever he else is on his tab, I'll take care of it. So when you put yourself in the first century mindset, uh, when Jesus tells this, they're like, that's a terrible story, Jesus. We don't like that story because the bad guy is the good guy. Why would you do that? But that's, that's what he did. And the hostility goes both ways here. It's not just that one side hates the other, but they both just hate each other. They just don't get along. Even though they're similar, they just don't get along. And the disciples knew this. And just a few months before Acts 1, when Jesus ascends near the end of his ministry, Look at this. Here's what happens. Luke also, who wrote Acts, records this in his gospel. This is Luke chapter 9, uh, 51 through 56. So this is when they're going to go through Samaria. Here's what happens. Luke 9, 51. As the time drew near for Jesus to ascend to heaven, 
Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He knows he's going to his death in a short time. He sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. When James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, so they went, to, they went on to another village. So James and John here, they get the nickname Sons of Thunder. This is why. We're going to be nice Jews. We're not only going to walk through Samaria, we're going to do ministry in Samaria. We're going to tell you that we're on our way so you can be ready. We're being great and gracious and nice and unlike the other people that you don't like. And this is the disrespect that you're going to give us? You're going to say thanks, but no thanks? You're going to give us a big old stiff arm, say don't come through here, we don't want you here? So their response is, whoosh, you know, fire from heaven. Let's get in the spirit of Elijah here and just destroy these people because they're evil, nasty people. You know, be nice to them. And Jesus says, no, let's not do that. But then three, four months later, maybe, Jesus names Samaria by name. I want you to go reach them. They're probably like, wait, did you forget how they don't really like us that much? Did you forget how they disrespected you like not that long ago and you want us to go there intentionally to reach them? It, it might have seemed strange, but Jesus did name that location in his final instructions. And then in the third location that he names, he must be playing football because he goes long. He says Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. And this location may have seemed kind of weird too because Judaism is very much an ethnic religion. It's a geographic religion. There are insiders based on where you're from and who your parents are, and there are outsiders based on you don't belong. Samaria is a great case in point to prove that. It's always been that way, and yet Jesus says, reach everyone with news about me. That might seem kind of odd. It might seem kind of rare. And even today, to convert to Judaism, it is a long, grueling process. You're basically talked out of it. Like if you are a Christian trying to convert to Judaism or you're a nothing trying to convert, they're basically going to give you every reason why you should not do this. Like we have hundreds of laws that you have to obey if you're going to be orthodox. Like you have to change everything about your lifestyle. You might have to move where you live so you can actually live that lifestyle. And so it's the same today. It's very much an ethnic and geographic religion. So Jesus here is kind of throwing a monkey wrench into everything that they know about religion, about faith. And the other part that might seem odd to them is even Jesus says go to the ends of the earth, but Jesus never went more than a couple hundred miles from his hometown in his entire life. So it doesn't say in the text here, but you can understand if the disciples are like, wait, you didn't even do that. Like, how are we going to pull that off? Like, if the Son of God can't get out of the country, then what are we going to do? Go to the ends of the earth. Like, what, what does that look like? How are we going to pull that off? How can we go further than him? But what the disciples had to do was to change their paradigm, change their thinking. And what's cool is that in just making this request to go to the ends of the earth, Jesus is underscoring, I believe, the importance of this movement. It's not just for this pocket of the world. It's not just for a certain ethnic group. It's for everyone. It's not limited. It's so important that I want you to go to the edges of the planet it's a little bit different. And for some, Peter included, it took him a while even to get this figured out. 
Like, it's not till Acts chapter 10 when God gives him a vision where he finally is like, oh, that's what you meant when you said reach everyone. Oh, you included, like, the non-Jews. I get it now. Like, when you said it before, I didn't, it didn't quite click, but now I had to have a vision from God to let me know that's what Jesus meant. And even in Acts 15, Paul's doing ministry. His ministry is basically for the non-Jews, right? I'm taking this seriously. What Jesus said, reach the ends of the world, I'm going there. But even after he started his ministry, he has to kind of check in with the leaders in Jerusalem and defend his ministry. He has to explain his methods because they're maybe unorthodox for them. They're definitely unorthodox for them. And they're a little, it's a little bit different what he's trying to do. And he's reaching people that are really far from God that have no clue of what they're talking about. And they're like, we have some questions. We have some concerns. So he has to kind of go on trial to defend his ministry. So it took a while. But as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, as we started our study in Acts, within about 40 years after this moment in Acts chapter 1, Christianity, as, as what we call it now, had reached most of the then known Roman world. It didn't take long for them to finally figure out and let's get this thing rolling. Let's keep the movement going. And as we'll see as we study over the next several months uh, in Acts, they reached all three of these locations. So here's the thing. If, if you and I are also followers of Jesus, we have the same mission. We have the same itinerary. Now, it's going to look different geographically. Maybe you will reach Jerusalem. Maybe God's going to call you to be a missionary to the Jewish people in Jerusalem. I don't know. Uh, but if not, it's going to look different, but it's the same idea. So let's go through these locations one more time and apply it to our lives. We saw how Jesus dealt with it. We saw how the disciples did it. But let's look at these locations. And what we're going to look at as we do is, what do these locations mean for us? And then what does it take to reach those locations? What does it actually mean? And what does it take to do that? So again, back to Jerusalem and Judea, the first location. Again, it's different geographically, but it's the same in principle. So Jerusalem and Judea, for us, is still our immediate vicinity. It's your family, your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors, your circle of influence. That's your Jerusalem and Judea, your immediate vicinity. We have the same mission to reach people in close proximity to us. The question is, how do we effectively do that? What does it take to reach our Jerusalem and Judea? And what it takes is consistency. It could be other things, but I think the main thing is consistency. You simply living out an authentic faith has much greater impact than you probably even realize. You just going about your daily life in faith, right, following the way of Jesus has a huge impact on those around you. Here's what Jesus says about that in Matthew 5, in, at the near the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 13. Jesus says this, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world, a town built on a hill that cannot be hidden. People don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Remember that song, Hide It Under a Bushel? You don't remember? Oh, I got it. No, okay, okay. Hide it under a bushel? I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel? I'm going to let it shine. One more time. Hide it under a bushel? I'm going to let it shine. 
You got it. All right. So Jesus, to reach your Jerusalem and Judea, he doesn't, he doesn't say, become a pastor. Now, if God calls you to do that, do that. Okay? But he's calling you to be your own type of pastor in your own type of way to reach your Jerusalem and your Judea, your immediate circle of influence. What Jesus doesn't say, he says, shine your light. What he also doesn't say, let's be careful, he also doesn't say, please do commentary on other people's lack of light. Okay? Which we, we can all tend to go that way sometimes. I can't believe they did that. They don't know Jesus. What do you expect? Or I can't believe that she treated me that way. Well, she's far from God. Be the light, right? He doesn't say comment on the darkness. He says be the light. Don't talk about the darkness. Expel the darkness with light. And it's more simple than it might seem because it's simply letting your love shine in your everyday life. Letting joy come through you. Letting peace come through you in just small, everyday ways. There's a famous quote by St. Francis of Assisi, the 13th century uh, friar, and he said, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. There's a story from the mid-1800s. Is an explorer from, from Wales, uh, Sir Henry Stanley, and he was an explorer. He was in Central Africa, and he had heard of another uh, pretty famous explorer and missionary, uh, David Livingston. And he's actually, uh, Sir Henry Stanley is actually the guy, if you know the story at all, who made the famous quote, Dr. Livingston, I presume, when he met him uh, in Central Africa. And so as uh, Henry Stanley just watches and observes David Livingston for a while doing his exploration, his missionary work, his ministry work, here's what he came away from that experience saying. He said this, if I had been with him any longer, I would have been compelled to become a Christian even though he never spoke to me about it at all. So what Henry Stanley said was, this man just lived it, and it impacted me. He didn't have to preach to me. He didn't have to guilt trip me. He just let his light shine. He preached the gospel, and if necessary, he used words. That's all this is. To reach your family, is it difficult? Yes. To reach your coworkers, is that difficult? Yes. To minister to your neighbors, is that sometimes challenging and tricky? Yes, but all that really we need to do, Jesus says, is let your light shine. Your everyday consistent life of faith is going to have more impact than a million of my sermons ever will. Okay? Now, if you have friends that need to be here, invite them, bring them, right? They need that community. But I'm telling you, you living your life with them is going to have way more impact than me preaching to them. So that's all we have to do. That's what Jesus says. And that's why one of our core values here at First Century is to be missional, to live in that mindset. This person that I see all the time needs Jesus. This person needs Jesus. And I can do something to shine my light for them. A small act of kindness, genuine faith. Now, again, I have to say this. I'm not, speaking, I'm not saying live a life of perfection. I'm not saying you have to always be perfect because you're never going to pull that off. But that's not genuine faith anyway. Genuine faith is, I've got my hang-ups, I've got my issues, but Jesus is greater than that. I'm still sinful, frail, fallen, human, but Christ's grace covers me. I put my faith in him. But your genuine love, your care, your positivity, your patience, your unity, when everything else is so divided, having that spirit of unity within you is shining your light 
People are attracted to that light. So if you're going to reach your Jerusalem, your Judea, if I'm going to reach my Jerusalem and my Judea, it's just simply a life of consistent faith. And the second location that Jesus again says is Samaria. So what is your Samaria? What does that look like? And I would say it's, it's two types of people that we'll talk about for a minute here. The first type of Samaritan that you're going to interact with is people who aren't exactly like you. The second type of person, and we'll talk about them separately, but let's talk about it first. First, people who aren't exactly like you. The second type of Samaritan in your life is people who don't exactly like you. That's what Samaritans were. Similar to Jews, but I don't like them. We have a lot of similarities, but let's focus on the differences, okay? We'll talk about what those look like, but what does it take to reach your Samaria? What is that thing? So first it was consistency. The second thing here is, it's a big word, guys, I'm sorry, conscientiousness. I think I broke my all-time Scrabble score here for the longest one-word point in a sermon in my life. If you're going to reach your Samaria, it's going to take you being conscientious, intentional, living with care, living with forethought. So let's look at these two people again. First, people who aren't exactly like you. You're going to interact, and you do on a daily basis, people that don't quite believe exactly like you when it comes to faith. People who would have differing opinions about why faith's important. You're going to meet those people. Uh, and so here's what Paul says about these people. Uh, an, interesting, an interesting observation that he makes. At Romans 10, 16 and 17, Paul talks about this kind of person. He says, But not everyone welcomes the good news. For Isaiah the prophet said, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from hearing, that is, hearing the good news about Christ. So you're going to meet people in your life all the time. You're going to rub shoulders with them who they need the gospel, but they don't think they need the gospel. Okay? It's kind of like, I talked to Christy about this last night, it's kind of like trying to get your kid to take medicine. You know it's good for them. You know if they have a cough, they need this. The problem is, it tastes gross. It's nasty. Like they say, cherry flavored. If cherries tasted that way, no one would ever eat them. Right? It's not cherry flavored. I don't, it's red, so they're similar color scheme, but that's where, that's where that ends. Okay? So the kid's going to resist even though you know and they know it's good for them. People are that way with the gospel. You know it's good for them. You know they need it. You know it'll change their life, and yet they resist anyway. Or it's like my, my grandpa used to do famously every Christmas as a kid. He would get this nice gift. Usually the, his, you know, three kids would uh, combine and get him a nice gift, a power tool or something. Every year he would open it and say, oh, I don't need that. <laughs> you know, and my grandma would finally say, just shut up and say thank you. You know, just take it, be gracious. And he, he did need it. Like it's something that he would have gotten for himself. So it's not like he didn't need it, but that was his response. Many people view the gospel that way. Oh, I don't need that. And they do, right? No, I've got my own core beliefs. Yeah, but they're trash. Like, you're miserable. How's that working for you, right? And you don't have to maybe say it that. Now, if you know them really well and you need to shake them, maybe you can. How's that, how's that non-Jesus thing working for you? Let's try, it. Let's try it this way, and you just give me your money back if you know, I can't make the guarantee happen, right? But people who are not quite like you, who resist the gospel, and maybe you were raised in a Christian home and environment, but many of your circle weren't. So you're going to have to be conscientious in how you approach those people. Like you can't just use these church phrases and Bible verses because they're not going to get that. It's over their head. The ball's out here in left field and they're like looking around, right? So we have to be conscientious in knowing maybe a bit about them. 
And again, the closer they are in relationship, the easier that's going to be. Maybe you're going to come in contact with people who have been burned by the church in the past. Or they tried the Christian thing, and it didn't work for them. Again, I would say, lovingly, you didn't try it correctly if it didn't work, because it has a 100% success rate, okay? You tried a version of it. Uh, you tried a, a half-hearted attempt at it, but it, it, it works every time. But, but these people are going to have objections. They're going to have personal baggage that you conscientiously are going to have to work through. You're going to have to have patience with some of those people. It's not going to be an overnight, I told them about Jesus, and they're like, sign me up. It might take months and years of just shining your light to them, or maybe they're going to be like, okay, I don't get what, what the big deal about Jesus is. Maybe you're going to have to explain to them through your own experience, and we'll get to that later on. That's what a witness is. You just tell what you've experienced. A witness on a witness stand, here's what I saw, here's what I heard, here's what I know to be true. So help me God, hand on the Bible. That's what a witness is. Jesus says you'll be my witnesses. Even those people who've been burned, who have baggage, who have objections, who have issues, we can show them grace. It's delicate, it's messy, but it's important. And sometimes your Samaria, people who are not quite like you, might be people of other religions, and they might say, well, what's so different about what we believe? We believe about the same thing. That's what the Samaritans said. We believe about the same thing. And so we want to carefully, delicately, intentionally, conscientiously explore their questions. We want to lovingly explain what difference Jesus made in my life. What makes him unique? Why I give my life to him? Why I live for him? So these are the people that don't exactly live like you, right? They aren't exactly like you. We want to conscientiously reach them with the gospel. But there's that second type of person and they're really hard to reach, the people who don't exactly like you. Or the people that you don't exactly like. Guess what? They need Jesus too. Maybe more than most, right? <laughs> but they, the people, even the people that I don't like need Jesus. Peter says this, it's kind of funny to bring it up here, but it fits. 2 Peter 3, 9. Here's what Peter says about this. He says, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise to return, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. Catch this. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Even the people that don't like me need the gospel. Even the people that I don't like need the gospel. Those people need the gospel. Those people that have burned you relationally, that have hurt you deeply, that you can never trust again, that person that annoys you every time you're around them, that person that's been hostile to your faith, they need Jesus. And that description that I just gave describes Paul pretty well, okay? He hurt people, he abused people, he uh, threatened people, he arrested people for their faith, and yet God saved him, God used him, and we still talk about him to this day. Jesus wants to save them, and here's the cool part, he may want to use you to get them to him. I know it seems crazy, I know it seems out of the box, I know it seems wild, but maybe, just maybe, God wants to use you to reach people that you don't exactly get along with very well or that you really butt heads with 
We want to be conscientious about those relationships, about those opportunities. We've all got Samaritans in our lives, whether it's just we don't think alike or we don't get along. And so may we be ready and willing to conscientiously reach them with the good news about Jesus. The last location that Jesus talks about that we're going to apply for just a couple minutes here is the ends of the earth. Now, this one's easy to apply, or this one's easy to cross over from the Bible because the world's the same as it was 2,000 years ago. There's more people now, but it's also way easier to reach people now than it was then. So we have the same mission to reach everyone everywhere with the gospel. But what does it take for us to do that? And what it takes is courage. Courage. It takes creativity, ingenuity, maybe some sacrifice. You know, last week, I think it was, we talked about the soon return of Jesus. We're ready, we're ready, we're waiting for him to come back. And I don't know when he's going to come back, but as far as I can tell, there's only one thing keeping him. And Jesus tells us what that is. Matthew 24, 14. Jesus says this, And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it, and then the end will come. As far as I can tell, there is no other prophecy that is left undone besides that one. That's why Jesus' final instructions were, go tell everyone so I can come on back. If you want me back so fast, let's hasten that coming. Let's do what needs to be done to get that done. But all nations haven't heard yet, so it's up to us to do that. And then Matthew, later on, in Matthew 28, he gives his version of Acts chapter 1. So let's look at it here for just a second. Matthew 28, this is called the Great Commission. Basically, Matthew's version of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that we'll come back to as we close in a minute. So here's what it says. Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Teach these disciples to obey all the commands I've given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So there's a word there I want to look at in both Matthew 24 that Jesus uses and Matthew 28 that he uses. It's this word nations, okay? So the Greek word for that is the word ethno. So we think of nations, we think of like Switzerland, United States, Germany, like we think of nations, but the idea here in the original language is people groups. So the United Nations recognizes 195 sovereign nations, countries. But within those countries are over 17,000 distinct people groups. And those 17,000 distinct people groups speak over 7,100 distinct languages. They all need to hear the gospel. They all need access to the gospel. But it's estimated that of the 17,000 people groups on the planet, 7,400 of them are yet to be unreached with the gospel. And of the 7,100 languages on earth, only about half, just over half have even a partial a, a part of the Bible translated in their language. Many of these little remote villages have never seen a Western person or any, anyone who's a Christian of any, of any tongue tribe, or language. So the question is, what do we do about that? What do we do about it? Let me just give you some encouragement on this, first of all. Uh, 
If you give financially here at First Century, you're a part of this. We're, we're actively doing that. 10% of our budget goes to missions, both U.S. and foreign missions. Uh, so 5% of our budget goes to an organization called Church Multiplication Network, which is how we got started here. Uh, last year, I'll mention all of these stats again. We do a year in review in about a month. Um, but last year, Church Multiplication Network, which we give to, uh, planted 265 brand new churches last year. So your giving, yeah, your giving helps to further that work. Uh, on top of that, we also give to Speed the Light, which provides missionaries with essential equipment and vehicles to do the work they need to do. If it's a Jeep, they get a Jeep. If it's a donkey or a camel, they get a donkey or a camel. If it's a, if it's a screen, they get a screen. So we, we help provide, give resources to those that are doing the work at the ends of the earth. A foreign missionary family that we have supported for many years uh, just moved. I don't know if I've shared that with you yet or not. Uh, they just moved from where they were in one country that was nearly unreached with the gospel to a country in the Middle East that is even less reached with the gospel. As far as they know, there might be two or three Christians in this country that I'm not going to name uh, for now. Uh, but they're there doing the work that Jesus has called them to do, and you're helping to fulfill that mission through them. And then uh, we'll talk more about this in a few weeks, too. We just picked up a new U.S. missionary uh, who's doing great work here in the States, and so we'll, we'll talk more about that. And so, so you're doing it. We're doing it in, in part through just our generosity and giving, okay? And maybe, though, however, we're talking about courage. It takes courage to reach the ends of the earth, okay? So maybe you're not someone who gives financially, so maybe courage for you is to take that step of faith and join us on this adventure, join us on this journey. Maybe that's what that looks like for you in that regard. Let's go back, though, as we close to this last key verse, Romans 1, verse 8. It's not only the key verse in Acts, did I say Romans? Sorry, Acts 1, 8. Uh, in Acts 1, this is the key verse in chapter 1, but Acts 1, verse 8 is the key verse in the entire book. It's the whole reason the movement got started was this verse as we close. Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That word witness is the key word there. Again, a witness simply just says what they've seen, heard, and experienced. It's simply living out your authentic faith. It's just sharing the good news in, in multiple types of ways. It's giving toward the ministry and missions that are all over the world. But here's what I want to close on. The Greek word for witness, if you look it up, is the word where we, is where we get the word martyr. So what Jesus says, you'll be my martyrs throughout all the earth. So this is why we say reaching the ends of the earth takes courage. What, let's ask a few what-if questions as we close. What if God calls you to go on a short-term missions trip? There's sacrifice involved. There's courage involved. What if he calls you? Would you go? What if it's not so short-term? And don't just poo-poo it. Oh, he's not talking to me. No, I'm talking to everybody. What if God seriously, genuinely called you to uproot yourself and go live in some foreign jungle somewhere to reach a lost people group. That would take courage. The question is, would you do it? He says, you'll be my witnesses. You'll be my martyrs. You'll have to give maybe everything for me. 
What if God calls you to increase giving so we can adopt more missionaries to further the work that God's wanting to do around the world? That might take courage, but would you do it? What if God calls you to maybe quit your job and work for some nonprofit that helps those that are in need? It's going to take courage, but would you do it? That's what Jesus says. Would you be a witness? What he says here, would you give your life for the cause, for the movement? That's what Jesus asked us to do. I know a heavy way to end that, but I think it's, it's where we need to kind of think. Because the question is, who is in my Jerusalem and how can I reach them? Who's in my Judea? How can I reach them? Who's in my Samaria? How can I reach them? And how can I impact change to the ends of the earth? Who is God calling you to reach with the gospel? Will you live out your faith consistently? Will you go? Will you give? Will you do whatever God asks you to do? These are the final instructions for us as well. So let's do all we can in all the places we can to reach everyone we can to continue the movement. Let's pray. God, we've heard the final instructions of Jesus. The mission is clear. The assignment is clear to be witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. So we need the Holy Spirit's help We need his power. Jesus says, you'll receive power from the Holy Spirit to do this. It's not because we can do it on our own. We can't. It's not because we have the courage. We don't. It's not because we're always conscientious. We're not. It's not because we're always consistent. We can't be, but the Holy Spirit can help us to draw closer to who you want us to be and make more of a difference. So help us to live a consistent life of faith that impacts those closest to us. May they see the light in us. May we remain conscientious as we engage with people that are not quite like us or that don't like us. May you still use us in powerful ways to reach even them. And Holy Spirit, would you give us courage to go anywhere, to do anything, to reach anyone with the gospel? It may be a thing that makes us shake in our boots, but if you've called us to that, may we be obedient to whatever that is. May we have the courage through the Holy Spirit to go where you want us to go, do what you want us to do, say what you want us to say, to reach everyone everywhere with the good news about Jesus. God, we thank you and praise you for all you've done, and we thank you by faith for all that you're going to do in and through us each and every day, and I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.